0: Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. Recent podcasts, audio on demand and live streaming available from the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. I'm Kate Elliot. On today's show we take a closer look at India's lauded sacred cow. Nearly 80% of India's 1.3 billion population are Hindu, a religion that reveres the cow as sacred. A status that is reflected in legislation, cow slaughter is restricted in most Indian states. Yet in 2014, India became the largest global exporter of beef and now earns more from exporting beef than rice. It is also the largest milk producer in the world and currently has an 11 billion US dollar leather industry that is projected to grow 24% per annum over the next five years. So how can a Hindu majority country that recognises cows as sacred also be a major global producer of beef, leather and milk? Today we hear an interview that I conducted with Dr Yamini Narayanan, a research fellow at Deakin University, a couple of weeks ago. Her research focuses on trying to unravel this most perplexing contradiction. And that's where we started the conversation. How can such a contradiction of sacredness and exploitation of cows exist in India?
1: Almost nothing, I think, exemplifies the staggering contradiction in worldviews and practices in India, as such as the issues around cattle, especially around bulls, cows and bull calves. Cows in India, cows and bulls in India are one of the most sacred icons in Hinduism, worshipped directly as divinity, and they are directly regarded as God. Uh, the Eden, the Hindu Eden, so to speak, is actually a pastoral cattle grazing haven, uh, like Jesus the shepherd in Christianity. Krishna the cowherd is depicted in Hindu scriptures as engaged in loving cattle husbandry. Um, The mother cow is believed to encompass the whole universe. Cow protection actually stands in Hinduism as protection for all that lives. So cow protection doesn't only mean only the cow, but actually for, um, especially Gamhatma Gandhi interpreted cow protection as standing for protection of all that lives. Um, And of all the animals and birds that have held divine statuses in historical and current times in India, the cow occupies definitely the most sacred space. Uh, And Lord Krishna equates the cow or the bull to the universe itself. So cow protection actually means the protection of the whole universe itself according to Hindu theological interpretations. And the cow or the bull in Hinduism stands for dharma, which is um, variously understood as duty, law, righteous conduct, justice, ethics, etc. So the cow actually stands symbolically equal to to, to human morality. Uh, And in the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna actually predicts that in the Dark Age, which Hindus believe is currently in progress, the cows and bulls will suffer intensely as human morality breaks down further and further. In fact, the cow and bull epitomise the suffering of all cattle and of all animals because of the increasing breakdown in human
0: morality. So is the sacredness of cows in the Hindu religion based purely on an intrinsic appreciation of them or did this belief arise from the utility of cows to provide milk and manure and other valuable
1: products? I think the original interpretation of Hinduism as regards cattle protectionism definitely regarded the cow as sacred for herself. Catherine Albanese, who's an American scholar on religion and nature, she makes a very crucial and useful distinction between nature as sacred and nature as sacred resource. And when you talk about nature as sacred, you do value nature, or animals, as the case may be, as intrinsically sacred and valuable for themselves. And I think the original theological scriptures quite clearly depict the cow as valuable for herself, regardless of her utility for dairy. And certainly in the age of Lord Krishna, um, the cow wasn't regarded as useful for leather or for beef. Certainly that was not the case. Um, but currently, I think in the neoliberal age that India finds herself in, uh, the cow is a meta-commodity where almost every single part of the animal body, the cow body, is an extremely useful, lucrative and an invaluable resource for triggering the economic growth rate of the country.
0: Let's talk about modern-day India. I'm sure it will be surprised surprise to many people that India is one of the top five exporters of beef, I believe and has a massive dairy industry and a massive leather cowhide industry. How can these exist in a Hindu-majority country that believes cows to be
1: sacred? India is currently the top beef-exporting country in the world. Since 2014, uh, the the US Department of Agriculture has noted that India has actually widened its lead over second-ranked Brazil in its export of beef. So India exports, expects this year, in 2015, to export 2.5 million tonnes of beef, as opposed to Brazil, which will export 2 million tonnes of beef. So India and Brazil together export about 40% of the world's total beef exports. And since 2014, India has also been the leading exporter of milk, overtaking the European Union and the United States. Last year, India produced more than 132 million tonnes of milk, which is 15% higher than the United States, which is the leading producing of milk, producer of milk at the moment. So currently, India exports only to its neighbours, which is predominantly Pakistan and Bangladesh. But over the next 10 years, India's milk production will include the European Union and the United States. So it's actually expected to triple. The leather industry in India as well is currently the top 10 foreign exchange earners, with an annual growth rate of a staggering 13.5% according to the Leather Council of India. So India produces about 2 billion uh, square feet of rawhide annually through the most cruel production methods. So these are all really top earners for India, right? Now, the economic objectification of Ind- of cattle in India, I believe, is actually quite compatible in some ways with the religious, what has come to be the religious objectification of cattle in India. I think in in the scriptures, there was... I don't think cows were regarded as, uh, were objectified as, as sacred. But what has now come to become uh, uh, is actually an objectification of cattle, a religious objectification of cattle, which I believe is quite compatible with the economic objectification of cattle. And the two work together quite well in basically the, what has come to be the brutalisation and the exploitation of cattle in India. Can you expand
0: on that idea? How do you see the common ground between the objectification in ca- of cows through Religion and also the objectification
1: of cows by industry. Um, in my interviews, for example, with theologians or with priests, of including of Krishna temples in India, as well as with animal husbandry officials in India, they would both talk about the cow as valuable for exactly the same reason, which is her capacity to give milk and her capacity to sort of give of herself and sacrifice of herself. Entirely, her entire body, like much like a mother, it's described in very sentimental terms. But it's much like a mother, a cow sacrifices the entirety of herself, right? Um, as as regards the religious objectification, when a when a cow is designated or regarded as a god, it ceases to be a cow. It's denied the right to be a cow in its natural environment. A cow, uh, when it's sacralized or when it is designated as a, as, a, as a god, actually becomes an object of worship. It actually is rec- expected to perform and behave as a god. It is made to sort of go through all these sorts of religious performances, cultural performances. And I think the fundamental right of a cattle to act and behave and be as a cattle is completely violated the minute it becomes a god or the minute it becomes uh, objectified as a performance performance object in order to sort of play out its role, for a living, how to play play out its role as a god. So um, the objectification, regardless of purpose or process, is inherently a violent process. Like feminists have talked about how the objectification of women is an inherently violent process. And similarly, and you know, in India as well, um, women have been objectified as sacred, or women have been objectified as goddesses. And again, India has a very, very sort of high rate of violence against women, and uh, it's not really surprising then that a cow which is sacralised, or which is which is objectified as sacred also has this sort of
0: high rate of violence, so the cow effectively becomes an idol, and that sacredness has um little bearing on the status of cattle and their the the actual protection of them in India
1: exactly, and also what a lot of people are not aware is that not every cow is protected it's Theologically, and that's how it's interpreted um, amongst religious people in India, is that it's only the native Indian cattle that is the the native Indian cattle that is protected. Now, what has happened is that the native Indian cattle is increasingly becoming extinct. A lot of the native breeds are extinct because of very irresponsible animal husbandry policies which have crossbred with jerseys, with Holsteins, which have been imported from Europe or from Australia. And these crossbred cows are not regarded as sacred. So the flimsy protection that is afforded to native Indian cattle is not available to these sorts of crossbreds, it's not available to the mixed breeds.
0: You are listening to 3CR's weekly animal advocacy program, Freedom of Species. Today's interview is with Dr. Yamini Narainan, a research fellow at Deakin University's Australian Research Council in Melbourne. Although many people may be aware of the sacred status the cow holds in Hindu religion, today we are discovering that this honour provides little protection for the vast majority of cattle in India. In fact, India is one of the largest exporters of beef, despite not raising cattle directly for this purpose.
1: In Australia, for example, you actually have broiler cattle raised for the beef industry. In India, because cow slaughter is officially banned, it's prohibited because of laws inspired by Hinduism, we actually don't have beef cattle. We don't actually have cattle raised explicitly for the purposes of beef. So it's almost entirely Dairy cattle, spent dairy cattle that end up as beef. So we don't actually have uh, an active beef industry. Um, all of India's beef industry, the sum total of India's beef exports, come from actually spent dairy cattle or from the you know bulls and bull calves, which are regarded as a waste industry of of um, dairy. All of India's dairy industry as well is actually not uh, large feedlots or large dairy farms. They are actually small. A number of millions and millions of rural households, rural households who have anything between two to six dairy cattle, for example, and who generally sell them for slaughter once their um, dairy utilisation has been achieved. So that's not dissimilar to the Australian
0: dairy industry that on the face of it is not a kill industry, but in fact kills around 700,000 calves within the first week of their lives every year in Australia. And and they also send their spent milking cows to slaughterhouse once their milk production has dropped off. So the death toll of the dairy industry is very much hidden both in Australia
1: and in India. Absolutely. And in fact, the grisly realities of India's dairy violence is obscured by the fact that the cow is perpetually a protected animal, right? So a lot of the slaughterhouses, a lot of the route to the slaughterhouses is actually via temples. It's via religious institutions. So what traditionally used to happen in India is that we would donate the you know, so called spent cattle or the useless bull calves, to a cow sanctuary, like the which were called the Goshalas. And what now happens is the Gosha so people donate these animals, these spent animals to the Goshalas and the Goshalas sort of use the backyard uh, the back door entry, the backdoor exit rather, to um sell them off to butchers. So the so the pathway to the temp, uh, to the slaughterhouse is through the temples. Because we are not allowed to actually slaughter animals in India. We are not actually allowed to slaughter cattle in India. So um, the, 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 the religion actually needs to be made actively complicit in slaughter of cattle in India.
0: However, there are slaughterhouses in India, but these are eclipsed by the number of illegal
1: slaughterhouses? India has a total of about 63. Only 63 slaughterhouses for the slaughter of large animals. Um, and yet it is the largest beef exporting country. In Cochin, for example, which is a major state in Kerala, which is a very, very high beef-consuming state, its beef consumption is on par with countries like Portugal or any of the beef-consuming countries of Europe. Cochin, for example, does not even have a single slaughterhouse which is currently operational or working, uh, a licensed legal slaughterhouse, I mean. However, um, this India slaughter, India's beef industry functions and runs on illegal slaughterhouses that thousands and thousands and up thousands of slaughterhouses that run throughout Indian cities. And in fact, it actually works for municipal corporations and urban development authorities to not have their own slaughterhouses because it saves them costs, it saves them um, employment, it saves them the employment of vets, it saves them the employment of um, slaughterhouse vets, of you know purchasing correct slaughterhouse equipment, etc. In India as well, um, prior to, all animals have to go through anti-mortem, which basically means they have to be certified as fit for slaughter. They cannot be emaciated, they cannot be deceased, they cannot be um, underweight. And almost 80% of cattle are all of these. They're deceased, they are underweight, and um, they're not really fit for slaughter. So it is important, therefore, for the state to actually turn a blind eye in order to enable the slaughter of these animals. Because legally, none of them are fit for slaughter. So, what are the animal welfare
0: regulations that exist in India? Animal welfare laws in India
1: actually are some of, probably some of the world's best um, in terms of transportation of animals. I think Europe allows about eight to ten animals per truck. India legally allows only about six, but the reality is that you know anything between twenty to forty to sixty animals per truck can be actually crammed. So, India really has an implementation problem. India actually has good welfare laws as regards um, designating animals as fit for slaughter, as regards um, um, forbidding the slaughter of certain animals such as cows or bulls or bull calves. Um, it actually does have very active um,
0: legislation. W- legislation for
1: just about every animal in except with the exception of chicken. Um, however, India does have an implementation problem.
0: This is Freedom of Species, a radio show dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning non-human animals. Today we're discussing the surprising and shocking industries in India that profit from the exploitation of cattle. Surprising because the general perception is that in the Hindu-majority country that there is the concept of the holy cow that offers some form of protection for cattle in India. It's this contradiction that interests our interviewee today, Dr. Yamini Narayanan. She is a research fellow at Deakin University's Australian Research Council. We'll return to the interview to hear about India's lucrative cowhide leather industry.
1: India and Bangladesh together really supply most of the world's leather. And most people regard leather as a byproduct of beef which it really is not once you look at the slaughter methods. Because for the slaughter of animals for leather, the common, the most common approach is actually skinning the animal alive. And the reason for skinning the animal alive is because we still follow the, the, the world standards um, set by Morocco in the 1800s, where Morocco was at that time the leading producer of leather. And Moroccan animals generally tended to be larger than Indian animals. So in order for India to be able to compete with larger animals, in order to have undamaged skin, basically, the animal was actually skinned alive from head to the butt, right? So this the, the most common method for, for sourcing rawhide is skinning the animal alive, which is common in India and Bangladesh. And just to give you an example, Germany, which is the largest importer of rawhide from India, uses it for its car manufacturing industries so for producing seats, and any leather piece which actually has marks in them are rejected by the automobile industry it has to be flawless leather and the flawless leather can only be achieved if the animal if there's no cut in the skin right so therefore sla- killing the animal prior to slaughter which either involves stunning or even the halal method of killing which involves Um, making a break in the skin is actually not an option in order to get a flawless piece of leather. And every single part of the leather is gold as far as the leather industry is concerned.
0: So why haven't the animal welfare laws been updated?
1: India is actually currently in a position to do that because India is now the world's leading leather Uh, manufacturer and it is actually in a possible, it's in a position to actually have more clout with the leather industry to actually have more of a clout with the automobile industry with the shoe industry etc it's mainly the automobile industry that determines these sorts of standards and India is in a position to do that however it has just not been a priority for the Indian state to actually take on actively animal activism or animal welfare it just has not been a priority because it makes so much money (music) 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive, and making a difference.
0: So, we've heard about the main exploitative industries of cattle in India, but there's also byproducts
1: from these industries. Can you discuss these? Um, There are two byproducts one is boncha, and one is um, dairy improvement, what is considered to be dairy improvement, which is not, or value added dairy, which is not just milk. But things like cheeses, processed cheeses, and also processed cheese powder right which which you apply on on chips, which is an industry in itself, so these are the main um byproduct industries, which is bone char and and processed cheeses or value added dairy um with bone char, India apparently actually has an under undersupply, so it's not just cattle bones, but I believe also dog bones are used to process sugar in India. Uh, which is legal. Um, India, United States, Europe as well, they use bonchar to actually carbonize their sugar. In Australia. I think it is done by chemical carbonizing, but in, in, the, in these countries it's done through bonchar, and there's a severe undersupply of cattle bones for the sugar industry. So Yemeni, what does
0: the animal welfare or rights or prote- animal protection movement look like
1: in India? I think there's currently at least three distinctive strands of animal activism in India, and they all seem to operate with different motivations. The first is the politicized religious activism, where Hindu nationalist groups, for example, will demand cow protection or the criminalization of beef. And in early 2015, two Indian states, Maharashtra and Haryana state, criminalized beef consumption as a non-bailable offense with penalties higher than that of peddling narcotics. So currently there's a furor in India over a four-day meat ban in several cities throughout India for indifference for um, a Jain festival. However, this kind of activism is based heavily on religious identity politics and the political marginalization and demoralization of Muslim minorities and Hindu low-castes. So it is by no means, in my view, concerned with genuine animal welfare. More vitally, they do not work for animal welfare. Any number of animal activists that have spoken in Haryana state, for example, tell me that despite the beef ban in their state, um, tens of thousands of cattle are trafficked in trucks every single day, illegally, right under the nose of the authorities. So this kind of animal activism only succeeds in what it set out to do in the first place, which is agitate and demoralize a religious community rather than actually benefit animals. The second strand of animal activism in India is the vegan advocacy, of the upper-class, Western-influenced intellectuals who borrow animal liberation frameworks almost unquestioningly from the West. And influenced by the narratives of PETA or Animal Australia, for for instance, both organisations I do have much respect for, they will use words like veganism or animal liberation or speciesism and rely on political slogans like animals not ours to use. While I'm sympathetic emotionally to these ideas as an animal lover, Vegan advocacy in India, in my view, is quite unrealistic and staggeringly out of touch, in my view, with the real sociocultural, political Indian realities. And you cannot work and operate for animal rights in India, ignoring these realities. The third kind of advocacy is similar to the environmentalism of the poor. What we can term, I think quite simply, as the animal movement of the poor, for it's not even solely or even predominantly rights or protection based. Unlike upper-class intellectuals, the poor actually have a direct, dependent relationship with livestock for their very livelihood, and have a completely different interest and motivation in animal welfare, which is intimately intertwined with their own welfare. So vegan advocacy, in some ways, can almost be accused of being very negligent in prescribing Western methods such as animal-free diet, for example, forgetting that it's not merely diets, but livelihoods that need to be replaced in order to institutionalize veganism in India. In Australia, for example, dairy employs 43,000 farmers. In India, dairy employs 73 million dairy farmers. And the government, in fact, wants to um, double this number to 150 dairy farmers in the next five years. So, dairy is not really a diet issue, but a livelihood issue. And it's directly responsible for lifting millions out of poverty in India, so it is so um veganism needs to take into account that it's a livelihood issue, and veganism, as it is understood in the West, wouldn't necessarily work in my view in India.
0: This reminds me of a conversation that we've had in the past about um, what constitutes veganism, particularly in the context of india uh, and you mentioned that um, we don't consider. Um, the animals that may have suffered greatly uh, ploughing the fields as um, so-called beasts of burden for our grains, for our rice, uh, particularly when we're discussing vegan, being vegan in India, but of course they export a lot of their products. So the process of uh, producing our food is also important to consider.
1: Um, veganism that only focuses on eschewing meat, dairy or eggs, for example, makes a deeply flawed assumption that plant-based agriculture is less violent to those very animals that vegan advocacy seeks to protect. Most of the world's rice, lentils and pulses come from India, Pakistan and elsewhere in South and Southeast Asia, where castrated bullocks are used predominantly for agriculture. So agriculture is not mechanised, it's still really reliant on livestock. The life of an agriculture bull is very similar, if not more miserable, than a dairy cow. Bulls are overworked, beaten, abused. And bulls, in fact, um, they have chilies and lemon juice squeezed into their eyes to force them to continue plowing the field even when they are exhausted. So, And when they literally drop dead from exhaustion, they're carted off to the slaughterhouse. So how much of our rice, really, then, is more vegan or more violence-free than much of our cheeses? Um, Vegan advocacy in India makes the mistake, in my view, of focusing predominantly on Western frameworks for abuse, where bulls are not used for agriculture. So it actually ignores the fact that it's not just animal-based food production, but even plant-based food production that is violent to animals in India.
0: When we first discussed this, it did feel like um, an extra weight on the shoulders of trying to be vegan. But... Now that I think about it, it's more just like a a reality check that veganism, it's not about being holier than thou. It's about educating yourself about your options and how to choose wisely to try and reduce whatever harm. And I guess there's just this extra element to think about, which is how has our food been produced and did that possibly involve the suffering of animals? And if so, is there another product which is more compassionate that I could choose?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And veganism, I think worldwide, has to grapple with the fact, and in India in particular, the fact that animal rights are intimately intertwined with the rights of the poorest humans. Um, In India, for example, some 60% of rural Indians depend directly on livestock, where they have anything about between two to six cattle or goats, Uh, from which they produce dairy and eventually, you know, they sell them off for meat. In Nepal, for example, it's a mind-boggling 85% of the rural population that is directly dependent on livestock for their livelihood. Human social justice, as the renowned deep ecologist Arne Nace said, cannot be divorced from environmental protection or, in this case, animal protection. Vegan advocacy, for example, misses which animal husbandry in India is much more keenly aware of than vegan advocacy in India, is that instituting proper welfare for dairy, for example, actually holds more promise than anything else to to ease the suffering of milk animals. Milk animals in India produce very little milk. Even though India is a very, very large uh, milk-producing country, per capita production of milk per animal is very low in India. And this is because they're in a constant state of starvation. Animal husbandry vets in India tell me about the education campaigns they drive to feed animals right to keep them warm to give them wet care in order to increase milk yields right so increasing milk yields is a very very strong motivator for a farmer to actually extend very good um, animal welfare and unlike the west where dairy animals get slaughtered in india we at least have frameworks if not practice we actually have frameworks where dairy where spent dairy cattle are retired in goshalas or in um, cattle sanctuaries. It is these frameworks around, and practices around animal husbandry and gaushalas that need to be reviewed, updated and applied rather than focusing too much attention at this moment, I think, on vegan adv- advocacy. Mm. Although there
0: have been several news reports about big dairy, big corporations such as Fonterra establishing mega dairies in India.
1: This is unfortunately a very real possibility that um, in India, where dairy has traditionally been the pooling together of millions of rural farmers who are pooling into the big sort of giant centralized dairy pool, what now is beginning to be the case is that we are having a lot of we um, we are having a lot of proposals for large dairy farms, intensive dairy farms with feedlots, much like the way that it functions and operates in the United States, for example. And this is a real possibility. Um, It is currently being protested by animal rights groups for reasons of animal rights, for reasons of pollution. But increasingly, I think the power is increasingly shifting to these sorts of large corporations. And this is why animal welfare actually needs to focus very much on humanising and making more compassionate, ethical, responsible, respectful dairy practices around the small-scale dairy farmers' Well, while there's still the opportunity to do that in India. Does the Indian government...
0: Local and national, I guess, support the establishment of the multinational
1: dairy companies? Absolutely, because um, the dairy, the milk wars, for example, which are focused on bringing down the prices of milk in Australia, uh, milk is about 90 cents a litre, in the United States, it's about 65 cents a litre, in India, milk is by far one of the world's cheapest at 27 or 25 to 27 cents a litre. Because of this um, dairy companies worldwide are interested in using Indian milk and Indian cows to increase dairy production so Italy for example is exporting buffalo mozzarella and all these very fancy processed cheeses from India so a lot of the um, increasingly a lot of the cheeses that you that you consume in Italy might actually be coming from Punjab in India so I've read that there
0: are animal activist groups opposing big dairy establishments do Animal advocates draw on the Hindu belief of the sacred cow in their activism?
1: Animal welfare organisations, and especially those that are concerned with protecting cattle, do use religion because it is so explicitly clear in Hinduism and Jainism and Buddhism as well that cattle must be protected. They do tread a very unstable, volatile area, though, because it could be seen as a polarising issue and marginalising Muslims or targeting Muslims. Or demoralizing Muslims in some way so they do have to be very careful about using this particular um, symbolism imagery to evoke animal rights and compassion for animals in India having said that I do believe that cow protection um, and the symbolism of the mother cow is a very evocative one in India and this is and should be used as a guiding sort of framework for for animal rights in India. Cattle husbandry is not unique to Hinduism. The Old Testament talks extensively about cattle protection. Islam has its own sort of very vegan-friendly, animal-friendly interpretations of cattle protection. And I think it is one of the most evocative symbols of animal protection in India. It is, however, and I think it's very risky, rejected. Cattle protection as a symbolism is often rejected by vegan intellectuals in India because they view this as speciesist. However, this is exactly the problem, I think, with using frameworks such as speciesism in India because it might not actually be the most resonant framework for millions of Indians. Whereas cattle protection, with its symbolism for as an umbrella protection term for millions of other animals, including non-cattle animals, is actually probably a more evocative and a, and, a, and a powerful symbolism for animal frameworks in India. Um, as far as diets as well are concerned, Um, A lot of vegan advocacy in India forgets that diets that are violence-free is an inherent part of many traditional religious Indian traditions for centuries, and it is not a concept that was introduced in India yesterday. The peace-loving Jains, for example, eschew even ground vegetables on the basis that potatoes and carrots, for example, the pulling of potatoes and carrots could damage ground life. Notably, they did not sperm dairy, because dairy traditionally was neither violent nor an in industry specifically. It was never an in industry. Rather, cows, bulls and bull calves were looked after by individual families and by the village community, regardless of whether they were productive or not. Veganism, I think, in India needs to understand that it's not animal products entirely. But it is the means of production that is more the problem in India. It is extremely violent. It is extremely abusive. And dairy is not suitable as a large-scale industry. But it can potentially work as a small-scale industry. And it is up to us to review how this can happen in India because it is currently the reality in India where the dairy industry is comprised of millions of small-scale rural family units. And it's not going to go away.
0: Some cattle are cared for in India through the establishment of cow sanctuaries. Can you discuss what cow sanctuaries are?
1: Cow sanctuaries in India were specifically traditionally meant for retired cows, retired dairy cows, as well as bulls and bull calves that were not economically productive. Now, in order to sustain dairy um, cow sanctuaries economically, One thing is that animal husbandry really needs to review how it conducts its policies because what animal husbandry currently does is artificially inseminate almost profligately, which basically means that our cattle population is way higher than it would be normally. So in order for cow sanctuaries to be able to sustain economically, cattle population needs to come down, and cattle population doesn't need to come down by culling them or killing them. It needs to come down through animal husbandry policies, not artificially inseminating them at this rate. So that's a, main, that's a really important aspect for um, cow sanctuaries in order to, for them to be able to function. Secondly, of course, we really need to review the scale of consumption. Um, Indians traditionally consumed about 250 ml of milk about 30 or 40 years ago per day, right? Currently, I think we now consume anything between 5 to 15 litres of milk a day because it is in the form of hidden dairy through processed cheeses. Um, you know, hidden dairy that's that's present in our food, just as, as it is in the West. Cattle sanctuaries also worked by selling of milk, traditionally. So it's almost like the younger car, the younger dairy cows taking care of the older dairy cows, because one of the ways in which cattle um, sanctuaries sustained was through government subsidies, and was through donations by animal lovers and cattle lovers, but it was also through the sale of milk. But it was through the sale of milk um, that was achieved without separating the calf from the mother. So it was what was possible to extract with the calf and the cow together, intact, living together. As
0: well as trying to establish a more compassionate and humane relationship with cattle and, uh, and lifelong care for cattle, I've also read that the sanctuaries are used to try and preserve um, indigenous cow species that potentially are at risk of becoming extinct?
1: A lot of the temple goshalas, for example, tend to protect only the native Indian species. And I think native Indian species should actually be, some of them should be actually on the endangered list because they are um, vanishing at such an, such a rapid rate. In India, uh, breeds like the Ongol breed, which is a beautiful humped bull from Andhra Pradesh, or the Gir, or the Kangrej bulls from um, Western India, they're all disappearing very quickly. So there is actually a really reasonable case for these sorts of animals, native Indian cattle breeds, to be put on the endangered list. Having said that, given that overwhelmingly our cattle population in India currently are crossbreeds, and they currently are mixed breeds, um, it is very, very difficult if religious frameworks consider only cat- native cattle worthy of protection because um, mixed breeds in India are unable to withstand Indian weather. They are unable to tolerate Indian weather. They are very delicate. They are susceptible to tropical diseases. They, in fact, need protection very desperately, possibly even more than the native cattle breeds. So um, there's a really strong case to to reframe um what cattle protection actually means. And this requires the participation of animal activists, of animal husbandry, of theologians, of priests, of feminists. That's a lot of us. <laughs> what a beautiful way to finish the
0: interview. We have run out of time and we haven't even really started to discuss your study interest, which is urban design and urban policy and how that affects the treatment of cattle. In India and in Southeast Asia so we'll have to have you back on the program but are there any um, issues that you would like to mention just before we
1: do finish the interview? I think there were just two points that I wanted to make and um, one is as regards um, advocacy for animals in India or in any developing country for example the problem with institutionalizing or mainstreaming veganism as it is understood in the West is that in, in, a, in, in countries where there is a very strong animal-human relationship uh, which is actually based precisely on economic benefit is that um, veganism implies whether or not it explicitly articulates this is that there's no mutual beneficial relationship whatsoever can exist between humans and non-humans. But there are several examples of respectful dairy farms in India. The himsa dairy farms in New Zealand or UK, for example, that function on the principle of non-violence. Male calves are allowed to stay with their lactating mothers. No bull, bull calf or spent cow was slaughtered to run profitable dairy farms. And I think in developing countries especially, we need to explore more of these practical alternatives that foster a relationship of trust and respect between humans and non-humans rather than demonise all human, non-human relationships. And it is also far more practical in developing countries where human, non-human relationships for economic benefit will exist, no matter what we may wish. Um, The second point that I didn't have time to speak much about was the status of buffaloes in India, where a lot of, you know, buffaloes actually fall outside of the ambit of cattle Slaughter and cattle protection, and I think this is something which really needs to be weaved in very strongly in animal advocacy in India um, because not only is the buffalo not regarded as a sacred bovine, in many worldviews, it is actually regarded as a low caste bovine. And if it is a low caste bovine, it is actually more vulnerable to abuse, whereas um, buffalo milk is actually more expensive, more lucrative, and buffalo milk is what is um, in demand worldwide for cheese. Does the caste
0: system extend to non-human animals?
1: Certainly, I think there is within within the milching animals. Um, There's certainly a caste system within the milching animals. For example, protection, flimsy as it is, is only afforded to native Indian bulls and cows. Um, The milching animals at the bottom of the rung, such as buffaloes or goats or sheep, receive no protection whatsoever and they are really subject to extraordinary abuse and extraordinary levels of slaughter.
0: That was an interview with Dr Yamini Narayanan, a research fellow at Deakin University's Australian Research Council in Melbourne. Today Yamini provided a broad overview of the plight of cattle in India However, Yemeni's specific research interest explores trans-species feminist urban planning, including, but definitely not limited to, examining the significant yet invisible role of animals in city building and the complicity of urban religion in enabling animal exploitation for urban development. You can find out more about Dr Narayanan's work from Deakin University website, including her recently published book... Uh, published this year, Religion, Heritage and the Sustainable City, Hinduism and Urbanisation in Jaipur. We do have time for some community announcements as we're coming to the end of today's freedom of species program the animal justice party has a film night fundraiser they'll be screening food matters a punchy 80 minutes of uncovering the trillion billion dollar worldwide sickness industry and the documentary gives people some scientifically verifiable solutions for overcoming illness naturally With nutritionally depleted foods, chemical additives and our tendency to rely upon pharmaceutical drugs to treat what's wrong with our malnourished bodies, it's no wonder that the modern society is getting sicker. So that's what the documentary Food Matters covers, all in 80 minutes. Um, And it helps focus us, rethink the belief systems fed to us by our modern medical and healthcare establishments. It's an Animal Justice Party fundraiser. It will be screened on Wednesday the 7th of October, so that's next Wednesday, at Long Play, 318 St George's Road in Northcote in Melbourne. Tickets are $10. You can book via Sticky Tickets website and you can just search for AJP Animal Justice Party Cinema or Food Matters and the page should come up. There is also a Facebook event page. All proceeds go directly to the Animal Justice Party in Victoria to help deliver a kinder world to animals in Australia's political system. There's also coming up on next Friday as part of the Animal Activist Forum Day of Activism, the March for Horses. So join Melbourne Against Horse-Drawn Carriages and the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses to demand change for horses it's a progressive demonstration. The first stop is at 12.30 just after midday at Burke Street Mall to support the Coalition for Protection of Racehorses, raising awareness of the cruelty inherent in the racing industry where horses are subjected to cruel jumps races, whipping and racing on underdeveloped joints and call for them to implement a retirement plan that would save thousands of horses a year from a horrific and unnecessarily unnecessary slaughter. The gathering then marches to the town hall where the Animal Justice Party's Melbourne Against Horse Drawn Carriages will present their petition of over 7,500 signatures demanding an end to the horse-drawn carriage trade in Melbourne CBD. The rally will then wrap up with um, the very place where the carriage horses are forced to stand on hard surfaces for up to twelve hours a day, with restricted movement, nowhere to graze, and limited access to food and water. So the details again. That's next Friday, um, starting at the Burke Street Mall at twelve thirty p.m. and ends at St Paul's Cathedral at two p.m. You can RSVP on via the Facebook event page. Um, please turn up, and of course. Everyone should have already bought their Animal Activist Forum tickets. If not getting quick, I think the deadline is uh, pretty soon, in the next day or so. It is coming up next weekend. Um, To buy your last-minute tickets or to see the conference schedule, uh, you can visit www.activistforum.com. So that's it for today. Tune in next week. Uh, Emma Townsend's back in the studio. If you would like to contact the Freedom of Species team, please do at info at org. We have Twitter, Facebook, and we do have a website with our podcasts. And throughout today's program, we heard some of um, Yemeni's favourite Indian music, and I'll leave you with the full play of one piece titled Prakriti.